Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, my name is Alan Moore and you're listening to Gaelic Games Europe's twice-weekly podcast, This Sunday's Game. Welcome to This Sunday's Game. Twice a week, Wednesdays and Sundays, we'll bring you the best news, views and interviews around Europe. As we are midweek and yet another week of lockdown, we're going to be a wee bit practical and get some advice on how to say well from the GGE's very own Health and Safety Officer, Anna-Marie O'Rourke. We're going to have a chat with the LGFA President, Marie Hickey, and find out just how she plans to keep ladies football on the up and up. And she'll also explain to us that it's not just the dubs that bring in the crowds. First, a little news from around the GAA and sports world. Well, yesterday's announcement that a ban on gatherings, mass gatherings of over 5,000 people in Ireland before September, it does look like our summer sport is very much in doubt. However, as Limerick hurling midfielder and last year All-Star nominee, Will O'Donoghue puts it, there are a lot of people making bigger sacrifices, he says, than the interruption we're facing in terms of our GAA calendar. Now, we told RT Sport also that people who are on the front line putting themselves at risk. How much longer are they going to have to endanger themselves or stay away from their family or loved ones? Issues like that are much more prominent than us having to train with no end goal in sight. That makes it quite insignificant. And he went on to say that everyone on a GAA team has family members or loved ones that they can't see at the minute. I have grandparents I can't see. We have to be conscious that there are people making much bigger sacrifices and it would be selfish of a GAA player to say, it's tough on me not knowing when or if I'm going to have a championship. So, fair play, Mr. O'Donoghue, half off to you. Now, as we went on air, former Shamrock Rovers boss Michael O'Neill is now the former Northern Ireland international boss. Now, he cites the UEFA's plan to mess around with the international calendar as a reason why he can't do double jobs. Of course, he's also uh, managing Stoke City in the English Championship. Now, the former Antrim minor footballer, said that the toughest decision he ever had to make in his career was to go to Newcastle United and ease off or put aside playing Gaelic football. When I asked him in 2010 about his greatest sporting regret, he answered, it was that I never had a chance to lead out an Antrim team into Crow Park on an Ireland final day. And as I said, he remains the manager of English Championship side Stoke City. So all's not lost just yet. Now, right down to business. And uh, earlier today, we caught up with Anna-Marie O'Rourke for her top five tips on how to thrive during the lockdown. Okay, we're going to throw in this episode of this Sunday's Game with some very, very important news and tips from our very own Gaelic Games Europe Health and Safety Officer, Anna-Marie O'Rourke, who, of course, in her day job, is one of our heroes. She's a palliative care nurse. Um, well, good morning, uh, Alan. Hope you're well. As well okay. as can be expected, as well as you'd be expected. So, listen, tell us, what are your top five tips to get through the lockdown? Early to bed and early to rise. Um, maintaining a kind of uh, going to bed early means you're getting good, good night's sleep, you're protecting yourself, um, but you're also not moving away from your, your daily routine before being in lockdown. Um, it's all too easy to sit there until three or four or five o'clock watching Netflix or watching news. But uh, if you're not getting your proper sleep, you know, that can have an impact on your, your, your mental health. So I would definitely say early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy and wise. 
Okay, that's a nice one. I like that one. Okay, that's tip number one. Tip number two. I'd say daily routine. You know, set yourself small little uh, goals every single day. Um, this could be, uh, you know, including sport. You know, as we've seen in, in, the, in the lockdown, there are lots of different applications available to follow sport. It might be perhaps your own club. It could also be, for example, uh, Wenjing, uh, our treasurer assistant in Europe, is doing a yoga class, which I've participated in. Um, you also have a, a project, for example, at the moment with Belgium, um, doing online um, follow-up on sport um, in a competition. So there's lots of, you know, positive things to do. But sticking to a daily routine, small objectives, small goals is a way to get, overcome uh, the feeling of being isolated at the moment. Okay, so that's a good one. A daily routine, keeping our heart rate up, doing a bit of sport. That's very, very sensible. Okay, that was number two. Number three. Like most of us, keeping in touch with family and friends. Um, trying to remain as positive as possible on the calls. Mm -hmm. uh, many people are away from home. Um, they don't have their family, so there's that extra worry. Um, so yeah, don't hesitate to pick up, uh, pick up the phone, call a messenger on Zoom, on Skype. There's many applications available. You know, I listened to Tony's um, podcast on Sunday and he said, you know, it's the moment to pick up the, the phone to a friend you haven't spoken to in a long time and get in touch with them and catch up and reconnect with people. I think that's great. I think it's a, it's a positive side of being locked in um, is, is the, the ability to be able to get in touch with people where on a day-to-day -day, uh, outside of being locked in is, is rather difficult because we're all caught up in our own lives, you know. That's a great one because, again, I was thinking exactly you said what Tony said last uh, on Sunday was, you know, if there's somebody you haven't been in contact for a while, drop them a line and see how they're getting on. Perfect. Great advice. So keeping in touch with family, friends and those people that we might not have had some contact with for quite some time. Okay, that was number three. Number four, Anna-Marie. I suppose if you do have an awful lot of time on your hands and you don't have you know, like walking from home, uh, have that possibility, or you, you may be single and don't have kids, uh, it could be a great uh, possibility or great opportunity to volunteer in your local, uh, you know, there's lots of applications available, volunteer.com, etc., which can guide you into areas of where people are more vulnerable. Um, you can get a, a great sense of, of, of uh, achievement out of helping others who are less fortunate. Um, and also to, to I suppose, put things into context that is as difficult as we might feel uh, that we're, we're going through, there's always people in worse situations out there. I agree totally. You know, as bad as we think we are, there's always someone else worse mm. off. Um, but I, a great Absolutely. idea. I completely agree. Mm. That was number four, volunteering. Number five. We have a lot of time on our hands at the moment. And that's something that we often complain that we don't have. Mm -hmm. So I use this time to achieve goals that for once seemed impossible because of uh, time constraints or the excuses that we so easily make as well by not achieving things, putting things off. It's the moment to do it. Uh, to test out your culinary skills and pull out a recipe book, you can go on the internet so easily. Uh, food intake, for example, um, you know, maybe you want to lose a bit of weight. That could be a good way, place to start. The bit of sport um, online, there'll be a better sense of, of yourself at the end of it. If you do happen to achieve a goal that you want deemed to be impossible to achieve. We'll run through the top five tips again from Anna-Marie O'Rourke. Number one, early to bed, early to rise. Number two, 
daily routine, including sport. Number three, keep in touch with family and friends. Number four, volunteer in local projects, for example, delivering food and shopping as Anna-Marie herself has been doing. And number five, use this time to achieve your goals that before they seemed impossible because you had no time. How is it where you are in France? I mean, uh, you're, obviously you went back into nursing during this COVID crisis to help out the local community. How is it there on the ground as uh, uh, um, one of the, the really vital, essential workers? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I was um, looking for a new direction before this whole COVID broke out. But once it obviously was declared, I didn't hesitate. I needed to get back to work. It was very important that I was in a place uh, to, to, to deal with it, especially, you know, as you as had rightly said in my introduction, I'm a palliative care nurse specialist. So I have three years of post-university studies in the field of, of palliative care. So it was, you know, it was a, it was a no-brainer for me. It was a, I had to get back to work. So I'm currently working in a 12-bedded COVID unit. So all my 12 patients are diagnosed positive with COVID. I suppose without going into, into too much detail, because... It isn't, it's about remaining positive. It's a very intense environment. You could, I was thinking about it, the amount of, the number of times that I would actually have to change, get dressed and undressed in a daily basis is is staggering. Um, and it's intense because before you walk into that patient's room, you have to have everything with you. Um, it's not like you walk into a patient's room and say, oh, damn, I forgot my stethoscope or I forgot the, the, the blood tubes for, and walk back out and go and get them. Um, each time you walk into a patient's room, you obviously have to wash your hands and um, you have to get dressed with the mask, with the visors on your face, with the, with the PPP masks that you can't touch once you put them on your face, your gloves, etc. Once you walk into that room, you can't just walk back out because you have to get undressed again and go through the whole process, which is time consuming. So you have to be on the ball that that little bit more um, to think about the next thing before walking to a patient's room to be sure that once you walk in, you do what you have to do and you 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 get undressed and you walk out and it's finished. You can't just you can't just come in and out. It's very, very difficult too because families aren't allowed in to visit their, their loved ones and Unfortunately, people's health have uh, deteriorated very, very quickly, um, which can be scary for the patient, scary for the family, but also as, as a frontline worker, as a nurse, um, you know, it's my responsibility to, to communicate this information to the doctors, etc. And it's, it's intense. It's intense. Oh, yeah. it's, it's no matter what, no matter how many times you've seen kind of the end of life scenario, it's still heartrending and heart-wrenching oh. as well because it's really difficult. It's, it's, it's more difficult because in a palliative care in environment, it is extremely emotionally draining, but it's also very rewarding because you know that you're giving the best uh, care to somebody who's towards the end of life. Yeah. The difference between uh, this virus and that of a, a normal palliative care situation is that these pe- most of these patients were not in a situation of being in a palliative care. Obviously, all families can't be around, but what's most scary about it is that, you know, parents um, or cousins or brothers and sisters only spoke to this person a month ago and all was very well. And now they're being told over the phone that they're actually dying. That's um, that's it's traumatic. It's extremely traumatic. And I think even for myself, you know, doesn't matter how many years of university study I have behind me, uh, it still brings a tear to my eye because uh, you realize that you know we think we are uh, 
eternal to some degree, but we're not. We're we're not, and especially towards a virus like this, that it reacts so differently in each individual patient. Um, that's what's scary, and it's to know that this virus is going to be around for a long time. Um, that's scary because where does it finish? And the expertise and work um, with the doctors, etc., are saying that this is not going to go away on its own, and we will need a vaccination, which is could be a good year away. So does that mean we will probably have to live in a form of modified society for the next year, which is? you know, has its own challenges, etc. And that's why it's so important to fix yourself goals, to keep routines and um, to keep the head above water and not to not think too much about this or, or to get upset or to get depressed about it because we will come out uh, of it the other end, um, but we'll all come out in a changed society. And perhaps we will readdress what our values are. And, you know, obviously most of us are, can't wait to get back on a football field and <laughs> kick a ball around and, you know, just have that comradeship that seems like it's so far away. It's, it's, uh, but it will come back, of course. But it is worrying times. And the best advice I can really give is stay at home and stay safe to people. So how can parents, like parents to explain to kids, lessen the stress, shall we say, for, for a child? Well, I, I, think, I think you do need to speak to your children in the language that's adapted for them. Obviously, um, you know, speaking to a five-year-old is different to speaking to a 10-year-old to, to that of a 16-year-old. You know, I have a 16-year-old daughter and she just thinks the world has ended because she can't see her friends anymore. She's more in a blame, a blame game uh, where she, she thinks, you know, it's, it's the fault of everybody else that, that this virus is going around. But you can't hide uh, this from your children uh, because the more we try to hide from them, the more anxious that they actually become. And yes, uh, I think you have to be honest. I think it's one of the basic human values, especially though that of what you want to, to, to pass on to your children is about being honest. And it's about telling the truth. Um, of course, there's ways of, of, of saying that, you know, you, you don't want to give true reality about what would go on in, in an intensive care unit. But and this could possibly be something that could come, come again in their lifestyle so, or yes. in their lifetime. So it's important, I think, to, to, to tell them, yes, there is this fire that, that exists. Um, and, you know, but how important... Uh, we have to talk about more the importance of looking after themselves and washing their hands and, you know, keeping the distance, although that's very difficult for young kids to yeah. understand. Very few people are experts on the subject because it's not something that we've been confronted at, um, in a, as a society for, you know, this is a, this is totally new. They say don't um, don't hide it from them. You have to tell them, but obviously in soft words, in words they understand. On that note... Uh, I'll say thank you very, very much, Anna Maria O'Rourke, who, of course, is Gaelic Games Europe's uh, our health and safety, health and welfare officer, and of course, a frontline heroine. Anna Marie, thank you very, very much, and we'll talk to you again very, very soon. Yeah. Okay. No problem, Alan. Take care. Keep safe, everybody. On Sunday, we were very lucky to catch up with the chairperson of Gaelic Games Europe, Tony Bass. He was in Maastricht, of course, in partial lockdown. Today, we were at to catch up with the president of the Ladies Gaelic Football Association, Marie Hickey, just to find out what's happening, what initiatives have they been putting in place, and also how can she explain the growth and continued growth and future growth of Ladies Gaelic Football. Okay, and we are delighted right now to welcome onto this Sunday's game a very, very special guest and somebody who has driven, really, really driven, with her team, of course, driven ladies football to even 
greater heights than I can ever remember growing up uh, for, over, well, 40-odd years, I say, on this earth. I've, I've never seen ladies' football as strong as it is right now. Of course, the lockdown is going to affect it a little bit, but we'll discuss that a little bit later on. But I do believe it's going to grow, grow, grow. Okay, so, of course, we're very welcome onto this Sunday's game. The, the president of the Ladies' Getty Football Association, Marie Hickey. Marie, you're very, very welcome. Thank you very much, Alan. Delighted to be with you all. That's and uh, sending best wishes to everybody uh, across the world and across Europe from uh, Ladies Gaelic Football. It's, it, it's terrific. I'm very, I'm delighted to have you on um, because, of course, this is only our, our second episode. The first one got a good reaction. So uh, we had, of course, Tony Bass, who you know very well, our chairperson in Europe, Absolutely. who sings your praises and speaks very, very highly of you. So just so you know. <laughs> um, Marie, uh, first question, not related to coronavirus, when you came into the position, when you, when, when you became president of the LGFA, what you see is the greatest development in your, um, in your, that, that you have seen grow so far. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I suppose there's a number of aspects to it. When I came into the position, I suppose one of my main goals was to improve uh, PR coverage and the media coverage and the acknowledgement for our players. I suppose at that time, um, we all knew that we had a great game and we all knew that our players were very skilled and talented. But unfortunately, we didn't seem to be getting the recognition that I felt that they deserved for all of their efforts. So I think that has changed a lot in the last uh, six years. Certainly, you know, we have now got to a situation where um, our players are recognised for their skills and qualities on the pitch. Um, prior to that, a lot of media coverage would have been about their careers or other activities that they would have been involved in. But now we see news reports and we see media reports about the actual game itself, the quality of the scores, the defending, the various different aspects of the play. That's really brilliant to see that happening. Obviously, we've had great support from TJ Cahar and from Lidl, who would be our main sponsors. And they have driven that on as well. And they have worked with us to you know, promote our players and to make them more visible every day. And really, I suppose the signs on for that are where our young players now would have many of our senior inter-county players as their role models, uh, which would not have been the case a number of years ago, I think. So it's wonderful to see all that happening. Um, and I think that has lent itself then to a greater interest in the game, a greater interest in what's happening, and as a result, uh, a greater number of people attending our game. So it's great to see that happening. In terms of the development, of course, I mean, it's so visible as you're going into Crow Park or walking past Crow Park, then towards Clonliffe, and you see the big, big banner uh, on the railway bridge for Lidl. Yeah. I mean, that was very impressive last year, for example, at the World Games, when I can only I speak for Team Russia, the Russian players and British players who were playing with us here. And they saw that, and it was that recognition of pride, thinking, my God, we're actually part of something. And kind of the heartbeat of yeah. Ireland in many senses. Um, how important is it to have a very recognisable sponsor, especially in Lidl, who also are very involved in the community? How vital is that? Well, it's huge because, I mean, they have marketed our brand, if you like, in their stores. And I suppose we have linked with them in many ways to promote that 
you know. Um, we've also linked with them now and with um, a group called Jigsaw, which promotes positive mental health for young people as well, that we are promoting through our clubs with them. So we have many links with them. Uh, and certainly it's brought our players and our game, you know, to a wider audience by the work that they have done. Um, and it's great to see that. And I suppose it's something that we see as a success and moving forward to build on that as well with them and with TJ Kahar as well, of course, who have put our games out to a worldwide audience now at this stage. Um, how important has the growth uh, of the attendances at the senior finals uh, been in relation to Dublin? Because Dublin, of course, did three in a row uh, last yeah. year. Uh, the ladies, of course. And you got over 50,000. Do you think that maybe you'd hit 60,000 if Dublin were there again this year? There, I can't speculate even for this year. God only knows what's going to happen. I really don't know, to be honest with you. you know. But certainly over the last three years, the presence of Dublin has made a big difference. And I think what we see coming back from the clubs, more and more clubs around the country coming out for the day for their kind of annual club day out to our All-Ireland Finals. And they come back year on year now, regardless of who's in the final. So we actually had a greater participation from clubs from non-participating counties last year than ever before. And that's really where we want to be going because, you know, if you're depending on one county to come and bring a crowd, regardless of who they are, um, obviously that's not sustainable for you know the future and I suppose it's not all about the crowd either on the day which obviously it's important but it's also about getting as many people in to see the spectacle to enjoy the game to be part of the atmosphere and to have that appreciation there for the players on the field on the day you know talking about it, it ladies football more so than men's uh, in in some respects seems to be more um almost cyclical that's dominated by one group of players who seem to come through together for example cork would have done a 12 in a row had it not been for dublin breaking it up yeah. in 2009 or 10 i think i, I yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you look at that, I mean, they, they did 11 out of 12 All-Irelands uh, in that period. Before, of course, you had a very dominant Mayo team. You'd had a very dominant Waterford yeah. and Monaghan. And Kerry, yes. of course, were the first really dominant team, which yeah. you know, well, we would expect. And we did have a leash in there in between as well. <laughs> well, I'm sorry about that. I know that leash... Because I know you did have a very... like in. I remember in the, the late 80s, early 90s, you had like... You got to a few yeah. uh, finals. They were well. always in the finals, but they participated in nine All Ireland finals before they actually won one in two thousand and one, which was oh. uh, you know, a great celebration, obviously. <laughs> well, again, it's, it's yes, yeah. The point. I get your point. It's very true, um, and I think you know where there are large centres of population, or where there traditionally had been a strong tradition, because if you think of it back in the eighties and the nineties the number of clubs in different counties varied considerably. Whereas now, you know, the strong centres of the clubs will be in the areas of high populations, which would obviously be the Corks and the Dublin and Galway coming through now, obviously, as well. Prior to that, it would have been stronger in country areas, if you like. So to try and get that balance now is, uh, I suppose, a challenge for us to get the standards more level across the whole country. 
in last year we actually saw that because our junior final, our intermediate final and our senior final were all very competitive games. And there was only, you know, one or two points between the teams at the end of each of the games. And I suppose our structure is a little bit different in that your county is either junior, intermediate or senior. So you're competing at that level and you're trying to get up to the next grade, you know? It, it, so, yeah. yeah, it's to have yeah. the balance right across the board and to try and develop the structures within the clubs, to develop the underage structures within the counties, and then obviously to bring up the standards across the board, which is something that our development team work very hard at. Cavan and Monaghan have been successful, um, or well, Cavan not for a while, but Monaghan, you kind of are still always like you're up there and about. Yeah. Um, what? Why, in your opinion, has there not been the same growth, say, in the other Ulster counties? Um, because I know for a long time, I mean, down were the first team within the six counties to win in All Ireland. Is, is that the same kind of? You see, it's just, it'll take. Yeah. Well, time. It's, it's actually. It's beginning to happen now because last year we saw Antrim mm-hmm. um, get to the U14A semi-final and were very narrowly beaten by the eventual winners. So we've seen Donegal come very strong as well. I suppose maybe the tradition isn't as strong in those counties as it would have been in other places. Mm-hmm. And the numbers of players are, are starting to grow there now and it's starting to become more embedded in their own communities. I think the major thing for a lot of this is the work that's been done in schools. Uh Um, And now I would say in the last five to six years, every girl now has the opportunity to play if she chooses to. Whereas prior to that, there would have been areas of the country where it wouldn't have been available to girls unless they were going to travel a distance to be able to participate in their local community. The work that's been done in schools certainly is enhancing that now. There was always a case that a very good girl would play with the boys' teams to a certain age. And then when the boys, size-wise especially, caught up and surpassed the girl, then it changed. It was the same, of course, I saw the same in, in our old club in, in, in Dublin. I was with St. Bridges and yeah. um, uh, Dundalk with Naaman Inn and Hurling. We had girls playing up to, I think, age 12, and then they had to go to Camogie, yeah. so that kind of division. So, but there wasn't the opportunities. Exactly, but that's changed now very much. No. You know. I've seen it in St. Bridges and Blanchestown, the way that they're developing, bringing young girls in and going out into the schools, which they'd always done, especially for boys. And now it's, there is a focus on the girls as well. And yeah. one thing I noticed as well, which I thought was a brilliant initiative, is something that I really would love to see carried out in every sport, is the mothers and others. Can you explain that a little bit for, for us? Yeah, it's, it's a great initiative. Uh, which was started 10 years ago now, I think. Um, It really started to bring mothers into part of the Gaelic Games community because I suppose we observed that mothers would be the ones in a lot of cases who would bring the kids to the pitch, who would be standing around waiting for the training to be over and who would then, you know, bring a load of kids to a match or do whatever. So it was an effort to get them involved in maybe learning some of the skills themselves and getting them out of the house and getting them into the community, getting them involved in the club. And the feedback that we've had from that has been just incredible. The number of women who say that it has been a lifeline for them, particularly say if they're 
you know, in a new community where they don't know many people or it's, it's really just brought whole communities together and gelled people together. And lots of things have come from it. And, the, uh, you know, I travel around clubs a lot around the country, I suppose. And in a lot of places, they will say to me, the Gaelic for Mothers and Others is the one thing that has brought life back into our club because it's got new members in and people who are willing and eager to get involved. Often people just need to be asked to do something. You know, there's very few people who will run up, you know, to the door of the club and say, put their hand up and say, I want to do whatever, you know. So it's a gradual way of bringing people into a club and letting them see how things work and getting them involved. You are so right that sometimes you need to sort of almost invite someone in because a lot of people don't want to put themselves forward. Team Russia, we had uh, our warm-up for the World Games in St. Bridget's and we played the... Well, basically, the, the, it was the basis of the Mothers and uh, Others team, with some other younger players put in as well. And the camaraderie and the friendship and the love shown to yes. a lot of foreign... There, there wasn't a single Irish player on the, on the Russian team. Yeah, yeah. Really stood out. Now, stepping off from that, at the World Games, there were players, ladies uh, players from around the world from Asia, from uh, North America, of course. Um, I think there was a team from South Africa as well, from across Europe and Great Britain as well. How can you assist the further development of that centrally? What, what do you think you can do and what would you like to do? Yeah, growth in general overseas, I suppose. We've put together a lot of um, programmes you know, for working with referees, for working with club coaches, for working um, in developing in those areas. And you know what? I think this whole COVID-19 situation is actually going to be a great advantage for that because so many webinars now have been developed and so many people are uh, logging into those events that it's now going to be a great way for us to be able to touch base with, you know, people in lots of different areas around the world, you know, so I think that's going to be something that we're going to be able to use moving forward. But certainly we have, again, our development team have worked very hard in going to different places and in delivering some of those courses to people on the ground who can then go and deliver the courses in their own areas, which I think, you know, is the way forward. We have to empower people who are willing in the various different areas around the world to take on, to be a tutor, to take on to a new level of expertise in order to be able to deliver that in their own local area. And I think that's the way forward with it, really, you know. Why should a woman or girl who has maybe never played sports before or has played soccer, so why should they play ladies getting football? Well, at the end of the day, you know, it's all about friendship in a lot of cases for unless you're at the, the elite end of inter-county football. It is about making friends, it's about making connections. It's about a whole social activity. It's about getting out, training, having a healthy lifestyle. It's so good for people's mental health, so good for people's physical well-being. Really, it's, you know, whatever club you're part of, you know you're part of a bigger association and you know you're part of a family that wants to have you there and that wants to develop your skills to whatever level it is that you can go to, you know. And I think over the years, you know, that's something that we probably pride ourselves in being good at and in including people 
And as I traveled around the world and, you know, to many different uh, places and to the European finals as well, you see, as you mentioned yourself, there are so many women who are involved from different countries, more so than you do with men. And I think that's because women are so good at being the one to ask someone else to come along and to include people and to get them involved, that people make great friends out of it, um, lasting friendships, which is, um, which is wonderful. On that, um, you talked the community and the friendships and reaching out. And you mentioned already uh, Jigsaw, your partner. How important, uh, at this time especially, um, is that sense of community? And what on the ground is the LGFA doing in Ireland at the moment? Well, certainly, we're, as I said, we're linking with Jigsaw through um, Lidl. We're hosting more online activities than we have ever done before. Um, and I know in local clubs, um, coaches are linking through Zoom and all the various different ways to give individual programs to players who are continuing to do some training. We actually, you know, there's things going on like quizzes online and all kinds of activities going on between clubs and bringing people together in that online space. Still the same sense of inclusion and friendship that's there, even though it's through a different medium, but it's still happening. <laughs> Europe, for example, forget the rest of them. We don't care about Ireland. We don't care about anywhere else. Just Europe right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I've been very selfish and all. Um, if you could, what would you like to see happen in Europe? And what would one piece of advice you'd give to our members across the length and breadth of Europe, from, from Moscow to Malmo to Milan to Madrid, what, what piece of advice would you give to them right now at this um, lockdown? Do you know what? I'm always inspired when I travel to European finals or to any of the various different games because the sense of uh, camaraderie and the sense of people's putting so much effort into playing the game, into traveling so far into you know, the expense, their own expense that it, it actually takes to do this. And when you go to, for example, the weekend of the European finals, that great sense of everybody coming together and it being a great social event as well as being a great footballing and competitive event as well. I think the thing is to keep, continue to include as many people as possible Ultimately, I'd love to see a team from Europe coming through in our club um, championships and to be competing at that level and to see, you know, the wide variety and the wide, both different aspects and different groups of people that come together in those areas, which is great. But for people who are going over, certain centres, I suppose, have more Irish people than others. And it's great for them to give their skills and to mix with local people as well. So apart from saying, keep doing what you're doing because you're doing a great job, more coaching, um, more referees, I'm sure, would be a great advantage throughout the whole of Europe as well. And hopefully we can facilitate this training now on, in an online platform um, to a greater scale. 
we're going to take you up on that for sure. Trust me, Tony Bass will take you up on that. <laughs> yeah, no, I have no doubt he will. <laughs> really, thank you so so much for your time today, um, and you take care of yourself. And thank you for taking such good care of the ladies' game. Thank you. Thanks very much, Alan. Great pleasure to be with you, and uh, hope everyone stays safe and well. Also, yeah, take thank care. You. So that's it for this edition of this Sunday's game. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back, of course, on Sunday. Same time, same place. I've been Alan Moore. Uh, remember, lessen the stress, take care of each other, and we're going to get through this. Yeah.